Welcome to The Bill Walton Show, featuring conversations with leaders, entrepreneurs, artists and thinkers. Fresh perspectives on money, culture, politics and human flourishing. Interesting people, interesting things. Welcome to The Bill Walton Show. Why is it that everything in America seems to become political and polarized and toxic? For example, it used to be that you could have a pleasant conversation with a stranger about the weather. Now, that leads quickly to a heated debate about climate change and whether or not you are a climate denier. What's going on? Today, I want to dig into some of the root causes with two of my previous guests on the show, John Tamney, author of the soon-to-be-published book, They're Both Wrong, and Arnold Kling, author of The Three Languages Politics. John Tamney is the director of the Center for Economic Freedom at FreedomWorks and is the editor of Real Clear Economics. John's other contrarian book titles include The End of Work and Who Needs the Fed. Arnold Kling is an independent scholar who blogs at Ask Blog. A PhD in economics from MIT, he's been a research analyst at the Congressional Budget Office, an economist at the Federal Reserve Board, and he founded the internet business HomeFair.com. He's the author of many books, including a personal favorite of mine, Specialization in Trade. John, Arnold, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Great, great you're here. John, why don't we kick it off? They are both wrong. Who are they and what are they wrong about? Uh, both sides, liberal and conservative, Democrats and Republicans, are wrong because they think they can fix things. Uh, that's the first problem, at which point I would say a major indictment of the modern United States is that half of the electorate is terrified of Donald Trump. At the same time, I similarly indict a country whereby half of the electorate or something like that is terrified of Hillary Clinton. That was not the founder's design. Uh, we were supposed to go to bed early on election night simply because what the president would do, what Congress would do, wouldn't be very consequential. The idea was that we would live in cities and states and choose our policy bliss. We might like a lot, a little, or middle of the mid-range on government. We would choose policies there so that we so that we could, if we did not like them, we could escape them. Now, I would argue this began in the 1930s. Congress and the president have more and more arrogated to themselves power, formerly left to cities and states. And as a result, Amer of course, everything's political because suddenly everything that happens in Washington could potentially impact what uh, people living around. So when government was 3% of the economy, it didn't much matter. When it's almost half the economy, it does matter. Yes. Arnold, how does this fit into your, uh, your uh, framework? Well, I think that what's happened in, the let's say, the last 20 years is that in addition to the um, sort of structural changes that you know, the government taking over more, there's the, the psychological element that people feel much more personally accountable and responsible for what goes on. We, with the internet and social media, we've had this collision between a world that used to be remote to us. I mean, the yes, the government affected us, but we weren't hmm. um, we weren't seeing the politicians every day, 24 hours a day, in a 24-hour news cycle, and things that were going on in the world weren't immediately 
present to us. And conversely, our, the, our friends were present to us in, you know, at this close range. They weren't appearing on screens. Now we're in a world where it's sort of mixed up. We have our friends on our screens, and it feels as though things that happen in the news world and the political world are actually happening to us and that we're responsible for them. So it's not just that we're being affected by political issues. We have this sense that we're involved. So you have this strange phenomenon, I think it's strange, of, of pe people posting pol and sharing political opinions on Facebook or Twitter. What, what do you accomplish by doing that? But people feel a sense that they do accomplish something by that, and they feel a sense of participation and ownership. Uh, some people might say, well, that's great. We have you know, more ownership of our democracy. But it's, uh, uh, as we get into it, we'll see that it's not a, a healthy form of ownership. And uh, it creates this environment where we all feel threatened by the people on the other side. So it's not just the size of government, it's also the technology, the information technology that's making all these distant things immediate to us. It adds another layer to the, uh, to the problem that, that, you know, that as a libertarian we feel is caused by the over-centralization of power. Real quickly, just if I know you've got a terrific book, requires a deep, deep reading, but quickly, the three moral universes. Okay, so we have... Uh, think of three bads. Uh, there's oppression, and there is barbarianism, and there's coercion. And we'd all agree, well, those are bad words. We know, we know they're all bad. But my claim is that progressives believe that when it comes down to it, they're the only ones who really understand oppression. And conservatives are the, believe that they're the only ones who understand that uh, barbarism is a threat that human beings have a natural tendency to lean back into barbarism if, uh, if society's institutions break down. And libertarians believe that we're the only ones who are attuned to uh, coercion, particularly the coercion that government has this unique power to coerce and that uh, liberty has to be defended against that. So when we look at John and your two two camps, the, the liberal and the conservative, They're, the horrible for the liberal would be oppression, the oppressed, <laughs> and the under the under under underappreciated by society, and the conservatives would be fearing barbarism and retreating from uh, Western values. But I think your gripe is not just that they have those things as good and evils, but they want to use government to bring a, bring bring about a, a solution. Yeah, I just I think there are different sides of the same coin. They're just they're alarmists on both sides. Uh, to to uh, people on the left, uh, a warming planet is is an, an economic progress is the source of our destruction. To conservatives, they can't look at a falling birth rate or a deficit without saying we're heading for a major crisis. Who cares that markets just mock all these things? But both sides want more control. They just want control of different things and. Uh, I think that's dangerous. I think it's important to stress that there's no such thing as government spending. What there is is there is political allocation of resources, meaning there's allocation of resources that has nothing to do with market signals uh, pushing them to higher uses. 
and both sides do it uh, because they want to fix things, and in presuming to fix things, they make things worse. Well, you make a claim in the book I don't think I agree with. You said both sides really claim to be for freedom. I don't think I don't think you just describe somebody whose main interest is freedom. That'd be more of a libertarian view. Oh, sure, but and but, I, I should disclose we probably all three are libertarians <laughs> in a yeah. in a in a disclosed undisclosed location. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, isn't it's true though? Isn't it ironic that conservatives talk all the time about limited government and liberty and the flag and what the founders meant? Yet they've got solutions to everything. Um, with Obamacare, it wasn't repeal it. It's, okay, we don't like that central plan, so here's our central plan. We're going to repeal and replace it with our own central plan. Uh, All of us have smartphones in our pockets that count as supercomputers. We don't know why we have them. There was no program to get them, but we have these supercomputers in our pockets. Yet politicians think that there needs a plan in place for health care. And the left, in the the same way, they're they're for freedom and civil liberties. But if a city or state says, you know, we don't want to do things that way, we think that it's probably dangerous to impose a, a national health care plan. We think that cities and states should be laboratories of ideas. The response to the left is we're going to ram it down your throat. And so there's nothing. Each side professes a love of liberty while acting as though, what, but watch their actions, not what they say. And I think if anything, um, they're even their verbal commitments to liberty are going down. I mean, I remember when progressives were for free speech. Now, on college campuses, they're not. Uh, Speaking of college campuses, I remember when uh, parietal rules, rules about, you know, who who could visit who and when and under what circumstances in a dorm were thrown out in the 1960s, and that was liberating. And now there's probably a thicker rule book on sexual conduct in campus than there than was ever thrown out in the 1960s. So, uh, I mean, I feel as a libertarian, our, our sort of al- overlaps with our allies are really shrinking. Um, and on the conservatives, um, they're no longer defending markets. Uh, there was a major conservative conference here about a month ago where it seemed to me like speaker after speaker was blaming social ills on libertarianism. They were blaming uh, libertarians for the opioid crisis, for the financial crisis, for uh, problems in rural America. And uh, so it's, uh, you said we're, we're kind of lonely. I think we're getting lonelier. Well, the financial crisis, that's an interesting take. You, you write about that in your book, and they're both wrong. I mean, there, 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 there's some conventional explanations for why that happened that the left have, the conservatives have, and the libertarians have a very different one. You want to go, who wants to go first on that? Well, there's, there's so much to it, but liberals or lefties, they say that it was a lack of regulation. Oh, really? Well, there were no less than 60 full-time regulators staffed in Citibank alone, a bank that's been bailed out five times in the last 26 years by the federal government. And so the notion that banks weren't incredibly regulated defies visible and and just empirical realities. Uh, Conservatives love to blame it on the Fed. Oh, yeah, the Fed lowered rates to 1%, and that caused a rush into housing. Okay, well, explain to me what happened in in the 1970s when the Fed was aggressively jacking up rates, yet housing was as popular then as it was in the 1970s. Conservatives love to blame 
the Clintons because they they forced Fannie and Freddie to re relax standards. Yet, uh, as I point out in my book, no less than George W. Bush said that ownership, home ownership in the United States is what scares the terrorists. And so we're going to figure out ways to get more houses and mortgages in the hands of the people. Conservatives I, I, going back to the 1930s to Jack Kemp were doing everything they could to increase home ownership. So the idea that this was a Democrat thing is just so... You don't think owning a home scared off ISIS? No, apparently it <laughs> no. didn't, but, but that, that's what conservatives said. Well, let me... <laughs> you're watching the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with Arnold Kling and John Tamney, and we're talking about the state of uh, politics in America. And uh, right now we're talking about the... Uh, causes, the root causes of the uh, crisis of 2008, and now they're very different views depending on your political uh, viewpoint. Yeah, well, it's, it's one of these things that fits the three languages model well. They, they, uh, the left talks about predatory lending, although, you know, it was actually the, the lenders who, who suffered, uh, suffered the most. Um, I mean, it's, Strange to call it predatory when you give you know a no down payment loan to uh, somebody who's a high risk borrower, uh, and uh, and then when you take over their house by predating, you 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 promptly lose you know fifty to sixty percent of, of of the value. Uh, very 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 they did a very bad job of predatory lending. The uh, conservatives will will then turn around and blame the. Uh, um, you know the, the the decline of of lending standards, um, and they'll they'll focus on that. Uh, and as a libertarian, I've got to say that you know, go back to John Tamney's point about regulation. Uh, liberals try to talk about regulation as this sort of dial that you turned up or turned down, and it was somehow turned down in the 1980s for banks. It wasn't turned down at all. There was a very a change in the regulatory regime from one which protected various banks from competition. So California banks couldn't keep compete with New York banks. Investment banks couldn't compete with commercial banks. And those regulations against competition were relaxed. But the regulations... That was Glass-Steagall? Yeah, Glass-Steagall yeah, yeah. and the interstate banking. Right. But the uh, regulations that were designed to protect safety and soundness were... In, the intent was to tighten them. They, uh, there was, you know, new capital regulations called risk-based capital regulations. Those were the things that actually backfired. And so, from a libertarian point of view, that indicates that government often intends to do one thing and uh, achieves a very different result. And that would be the kind of the libertarian story. It would be kind of my story on the uh, of the financial crisis. Well, uh, well, it's it's. It's just stunning to me that we have this bill called Dodd and Frank because Mr. Dodd and Mr. Frank were two of the prime movers in causing government agencies, Fannie, Freddie, whatever, to loosen their lending standards. And I knew we were in trouble when my housekeeper came home one day and, you know, she wasn't making a lot of money. And she says, well, I just got a mortgage for X amount. And it's really great because they not only lent me the full amount of the house, but they lent me an extra $5,000 so I can buy furniture for it. And I said, well, how much, how much did you put in? Oh, we took money back. <laughs> yeah. And 
that was the that was the that was the that was the way it was played and 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 private you know the the private sector responded to all the incentives created by Freddie and Freddie and Fanny and said okay well that's the game we're in that's that's the game we'll play and, and I just think it's worth stressing that businesses make mistake mistakes all the time you know in the early 20th century there are 2,000 car makers formed around the industrial Midwest just about every single one of them died uh, there was no financial crisis that's called progress Silicon Valley in in they're both wrong my constant refrain is that in Silicon Valley over nine out of ten businesses uh, are started up and they fail this is called progress there was no financial crisis in 2008 there was a crisis of intervention you have markets correcting what's not working the the excesses that you talk about and then politicians as is their want because we're not supposed to feel pain they stepped in and intervened and created a crisis i will go to my grave saying that if nothing is done back then there is no crisis and i think even libertarians have had a tendency to blame the fed or the government did this look governments make mistakes all the time they're governments and a four trillion there's going to be lots of them it's when you intervene when markets are corrected well the, i think the, the the point here is that these are non-market actors that are imposing rules on the players in the game the market actors and the, you you respond to what what you're told and you mentioned capital standards remember when they said that i guess was it basel that declared that anything rated triple a as a as a mortgage you didn't need any capital to back it up if you were a bank or some ridiculously yeah, it, small number yeah and that, and that you know my personal view is that that was probably the biggest contributor that government yeah made i agree to, i agree to the crisis and it's something that few people know about it's a very subtle point but it it uh, it, it makes a, a huge difference well I used to be a banker and if it's your own money and you're making your own decisions and you're not being told by the regulators or by the bond rating agencies you know this that or the other you're going to protect your capital like it's yours and you're not going to go with Basel capital standards you're going to say I've got a trillion dollars of mortgages on my balance sheet I better have a little equity to back up that holding in case the value deteriorates and it did deteriorate and they got wiped out yeah the uh, and yeah the the incentive so I think you and I need to go on a campaign to get the Basel explanation for 2008 out well, there because most people don't understand right that. No, I, I well one of the uh, one of the things on my resume is the something called not what they had in mind a, a history of government policies that caused the crisis and that that talks about one of them and there's also a book by Jeffrey Friedman and Vladimir Klaus I think called something like engineering the financial crisis and they they point straight at Basel and that doesn't we, necessarily make it right but it, it's uh so out there would the, we would we'd find not what they had in mind on Amazon uh you would find it on Amazon I think you can Probably find a free copy somewhere on on the internet if you. If you no, we really don't do. Look, we don't do free. Yeah, we're, we're, we're in the booth. We want to sell books. You, you can, <laughs> but I, uh, at the margin, I don't get anything from it, so it doesn't matter to me. Well, speaking of selling books, John, uh, I think you. I do want to sell them. <laughs> well, <laughs> we, uh, you know, I, I th your larger point is that is that it's not government but it's government that's 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 centralized in the capitals not just in Washington but all over the world and you believe I believe that 
you need government. It's some, you know, we need we need that, but it ought to be local, and the dollars ought to go local. We've got way too much centralized in in, in D.C. Yeah, I'm not anti-government. People always say, "Well, you hate government." I'm probably more of a skeptic than most, but no, what I hate is national government. Yeah, that's because people should get to choose their bliss, and and that was called idealistic. And okay, let's agree that it's idealistic, but the Constitution as the founding document was realistically the first one and mankind's history that was very skeptical about government that said that these people used to not work in government they're fallible individuals they're just like but they work in government and so let's leave most of the decision making locally and that's what businesses do all the time when burger king rolled out its plant-based burger I, I the very idea revolts me but it started out in st louis in the st louis metro area as in we're not going to foist this decision on 7,000 locations in the u.s we'll try it in one area see how it works out Businesses recognize all the time that they must try something small and then see how it works. With the federal government, they nationalize policies such that their errors, which are inevitable, are felt by everyone. And I'm saying let's let's bring it back. Let's bring it local precisely because these guys are pro so prone to mistakes. I, I like to say that, that the argument for uh, less government is that progress comes from experimentation, evaluation, and evolution. Yeah. And government is sort of weak in all of those. It won't try enough experiments. Uh, it doesn't, know, doesn't think in experimental terms. Uh, doesn't really evaluate them carefully. The, you know, if, if a business doesn't want to evaluate its products carefully, too bad. It's going it, to, its profit and loss statement will evaluate it for it. And then evolution. So you talk about nine out of ten Silicon Valley things failing. Well, probably nine out of ten public policies fail, but the but they don't get they don't disappear. But they stay on the books. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you're watching the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here with John Tamney and Arnold Kling, and we're talking about the limits of uh, of, of federal power and, and expertise. The the thing you have a your. John Tierney wrote an intro to your book, which I think was he had a great sentence in here. It says, Washington experts are rarely punished. Bureaucracies are immortal, so they don't learn. And what we, I think we need to understand is that not we think that bureaucracies are filled with bad people. They're not bad people. They're probably people just like everybody else, but just the nature of what they do. They're not close enough to, to problems and, and, and therefore solutions, and they don't learn anything. Yeah. It, look, if Bill Walton, Senator Bill Walton from Virginia, you're a disastrous allocator of capital. And you are because you don't have to realize your... Well, I'd, I'd think I'd be. <laughs> but, <laughs> but that's just it. You become a senator. Yeah. All of a sudden, you think you're omnipotent. Because you and Buffett in the Senate would suddenly not have to realize your errors. And even if you wanted to realize your errors, someone will say, hey, wait a second, some of that spending is occurring in my district. If you want to, you're not going to. And one of the, with every book I write, I always bring, try to bring real world stories into it. And so one of the themes that keeps coming into this one is Ed Catmull, the founder of Pixar, uh, the great, the wildly successful movie studio. And as he says, we constantly rush to our mistakes. Catmull is uncomfortable if a movie's going well because he knows he's missing something. As he also adds, all of our movies suck at first. And so it's this constant search for errors. And he realizes that because 
he used to live in, in a world where Pixar could not get any funding at all to make movies. And so he's got to have that focus. With government, it doesn't matter if you're Republican, Democrat, or even libertarian like us, you don't have to rush to your mistakes because there's a constant inflow of dollars. You know there's guaranteed income on an annual basis. So there's less of a need to fix what's what's wrong. And so again, that calls for the decentralization of power uh, for, for those reasons yet again. I would, well, so entrepreneurs fail. They fail many times, usually before they succeed. And then they succeed and we only look at the uh, those successes and it must be easy, so therefore we'll tax them. Uh, let me change gears a bit to um, something that might be on point. Budget deficits and taxes. We talked about the size and scope of the federal government. We're now running, what, over a trillion dollars a year annual deficit. Uh, what do we think about that? I don't think about it at all. I think it's a huge waste of time. Would we prefer an annual budget uh, that's balanced of $4 trillion? or an annual budget deficit of $1 trillion on $2 trillion in spending? To, to me, the answer is obvious. I don't care how they access the funds that we know by definition they're going to misallocate because it's a political mass allocate, misallocation. I just care about the total dollar amount. Government can take it in taxes, or it can borrow it and pay us for the right to misallocate, but let's not pretend one is worse than the other, and I think market signals support my point of view. The budget deficit was $1 trillion in 1980, and the yield on 10-year Treasury was 11%. Fast forward to the present, it's $21 trillion, and then with unfunded liabilities, I know it's many multiples of that, and it's the yield on the 10-year is somewhere south of 2%. These are the deepest markets in the world. Are these markets stupid? Because I've heard all of my life that deficits are going to destroy us, I keep waiting for this. I keep waiting for when markets are going to discipline government. I don't worry about deficits. I worry about the size. Deficits are a waste. That was the chapter in your book that I disagreed with because I think uh, in some sense the market is stupid for buying long-term government bonds. I wouldn't do it myself, uh, so that's just my opinion. But I don't know how to exercise that opinion in a way that would work in the market. Um, you know, because I don't know how the government is going to default exactly. It may pay off its bonds and screw some future Medicare or Social Security recipients. Uh, maybe it will sell off all of you know, Yosemite and the other national parks. Uh, maybe it will print lots of money like the... the uh, the, what is it, the MMT theory? Of, uh, modern, modern monetary, monetary theory, theory, right. Yeah, Maybe MMT, it'll just yeah. print, print money in inflated ways. So, so I don't know how government's going to default. Because of that, I don't know how to express my opinion in the market other than, you know, by I personally don't, don't own a whole lot of long-term bonds. Um, but at some point, somebody is going to get screwed. I mean, that that's my reading of the... Do you agree that that's office. been said all of your life and mine? Because that's all I've ever heard. Um, I would say it's been more true recently. With like, So start with, let's say, the Congressional Budget Office forecasts, which show you know, an unsustainable 
pattern, you know, path for government spending. It's just, you know, we, we can't fund it. So who's going to get screwed? Is it going to be bondholders? Is it going to be people expecting Social Security or what? Or do you believe that government, that the private sector is going to take off and grow so fast that the government can just afford to spend whatever it wants? I mean, what, well, what, what, what assumptions are wrong in those congressional budget well, offices? Before, before you, let, me, let me just see if I can simplify the issue. I think what you're saying, if we got a $5 trillion deficit, or $4 trillion budget and a $5 trillion deficit, that the bond market's financing it, then short term, that's just another way to finance the federal spending. What Arnold's saying, and I think I agree, is that long term, there will be a day of reckoning. And so it's short term, we don't care. Long term, it could be catastrophic. Uh, sure, but in answer to... Because to I, I, I think that's the most dangerous uh, weapon... Mm -hmm. If not the most, it's in the top, it's in my top five. Okay, but my response to that would be tomorrow is already being priced. What is the 30-year okay. bond but the market saying, hmm, 30 years from now, we're, we're just so not worried well, about that. Well, we're also talking now about selling 100-year Now we're talking about 100-year bonds. Right. Markets are saying that this is not going to be a problem. So it, this idea about being screwed through money printing or someone being cut off, at least now the deepest markets in the world disagree. Now, it's possible that the two people I'm sitting across from are smarter than every single other market participant, not to mention all those who aren't participating but who are not worried. But collectively, it's not unreasonable to say that they're much smarter than you are. You may be the smartest person in FedEx field on, on any given Sunday, judging by the fans. I, I, I can almost confirm that. But collectively, <laughs> they more, know more than you do. And so I, Do they I, still show up, by the way? <laughs> not, not as many. So, so you're, you're smarter than you used to be relative to the Redskin fan base. But <laughs> as I argue in the book, and I think it's correct, you know, what are bonds but an income stream? People are purchasing an income stream. If, in fact, it was a problem of revenues, if the spending, because I've heard unsustainable all my life, all of my sentient life, well, the CBO says this, and it, there's, I remember when John McCain ran for president, they showed a video of him every year from 1980 up until 2008, saying, hey, someday these deficits are going to get us. The problem is we've got too much in the way of revenues, and the markets are pricing a surge of revenues in the future as talented people are able to meet the needs of more and more people around the world. And as a consequence, government borrowing becomes easier and easier. The deficits are not the tragedy, is the spending. But, but what's odd about that, I mean, one model is, yeah, the markets are expecting a lot of growth, but you'd think if that were true, then interest rates in general would be high. I mean, we're, we're sort of in a world where uh, Piketty, who said that, well, inequality is because the interest rate is way higher than the growth rate, has, should be coming out now and saying inequality should be dropping like a stone because... Uh, interest rates are so low. Why would interest rates be high if the economy is growing? Uh, well, because because you're getting some return on capital. So you you, you would think that, uh, <clears throat> I mean, yeah, that it, so they were high in the 1970s. I, was that a high growth period? Uh, uh, they're they're high, guaranteed they're high in Haiti right now. Is yeah, they, well, of course that's because people were factoring a lot of inflation. So, but it, the people. So, and they're also high now. If 
you, you know better than I, but, if you go to but, Silicon but, Valley but, and try but, to fund a business, they're so high that you couldn't even get debt. Okay, so, yeah. So, well, that, well then that, that's another possible story, which is that uh, for some reason, people consider even 30-year bonds a safe haven. But any sort of private capital investment, they think, oh, that's really risky. Um, it's interesting to think why that could be. It could be that one scenario is that people are absolutely confident that the U.S. Navy is going to make sure that the U.S. will never default on bonds. But heaven help you if you have private wealth. That, no, but you just that, so, so maybe the market is, is thinking that Elizabeth Warren is going to come in and tax all your private wealth. No, but, but you just explain why. Of course it's capital is tight in the private sector because, as you agree, we're constantly experimenting and we're constantly failing. The cost of experimentation is always going to be higher, but you would also agree, as you've alluded, that where there's lots of experimentation, there's lots of growth. Government bonds are just a reflection of how much they, they're going to collect from the most talented, innovative people on earth going forward. If you're looking at individual, of course capital's tight. And as Bill and I have discussed here on this show before, that's why in Hollywood nothing gets funded. That's why in Silicon Valley credit is always so tight that if you want anything, you're going to give away so much of your business to a venture capital. Yes. It's a different thing. Well, when I, when I talk to my wife about our finances, I say the biggest risk is the government... Government needs this, needs our money. That's and that's the biggest risk. And the que the thing is, I don't know how they're going to get it. Um, you know, maybe you know, I mean maybe what the market is pricing in is Elizabeth Warren's going to come in, and the good news yes. for bondholders is she's going to pay off the debt. The bad news is that for any wealthy people, she's going to pay it off by confiscating people's wealth. But if she did that, you would see yields on treasuries skyrocket because Why? these the yields reflect not a revenue problem. They reflect too much in the way of revenue. So if suddenly you confiscate all of the growth capital, paying off this debt suddenly becomes a much more difficult concept. It's precisely because the markets expect there not to be massive wealth confiscation in the future that investors think this so, is a safe bet. If, so look at what happened in think, Greece. They, in 2010, they raised taxes to pay off the debt, and bond yields on Greece exploded. Well, of course they did. We have a problem of too much in the way of revenues, not too little. Well, I don't think we're going to resolve this. I don't even think we understand why interest rates are negative. I mean, this is the, we're, we're wandering in an area here. If you talk about your sentient life, there was, a, there was an order of the universe. I've got a, a book written by a guy named Sidney Homer. I was an investment banker, and it was called The History of Interest Rates. And it had like 3,000 years of what the Babylonians were doing and the Romans and the Middle Ages, even with the church banning usury. And interest rates were always sort of 4%, 10%, something like that. I don't remember any chapters in his book where he talked about zero or negative interest rates. And so maybe... You can explain why the market thinks we had a negative interest Consider rates. who owns those bonds. Central banks, pensions, and insurance companies. And big banks that are forced by the government forced. to own the thing. No sentient, no sentient human being is going to say, because money, it's not money. Money is just access to resources. No one's going to say, here's a pile of money that is exchangeable for this. I'm going to hand it to you so I can get back less resource allocation <laughs> in the future. This is heavily regulated, and central banks 
doing something that in the free market would never happen. So I think it's important. Yeah, it's, negative rates are an impossibility. I, I kind of like I kind of like the argument that interest rates, government interest bonds rates are low because everybody knows the government's going to come and find a way to take the money from you anyway. <laughs> so so they've, got, they've got the ultimate collateral. I trust <laughs> capitalists like you to always outrun governments. Well, you're, you're way too smart well, for Donald that, Trump that, and Barack that's, Obama. That's flattering. <laughs> uh, we're, uh, <laughs> you're watching the Bill Walton Show, and I'm here talking about uh, zero interest rates. For all of you who are interested in that, I am, with Arnold Kling and John Tamney. Uh, but we're going to shift from the world of interest rates to the world of climate. And climate is one of those issues, John. You say the market is pricing uh, no climate change into their into their calculations. Have you familiar with that argument? Um, yes, I am. I think some people claim that uh, insurance companies for flood insurance are starting to price it in, but I, I don't follow that literature. I don't claim to. John. Know. Yeah, uh, Warren Buffett made the point that on catastrophic. Uh, funding. They got out of it. It just wasn't a good business because there was the risk wasn't there to be in the business to make it worthwhile. And you just look around the world. What is the greatest market signal of all, bar none? It's where are people moving. And so as we speak, 44% of the world's population lives in coastal areas, lives and works in coastal areas. Uh, that number is set to rise, and it's set to rise substantially. I have no doubt, once again, that the scientists promoting Armageddon, Armageddon that is going to run roughshod over these coastal cities and wipe out all the wealth there, I have no doubt that they're brilliant. And that's why I don't make a scientific argument. Um, I'm just saying it would be an impossibility, among other things, that the whole world couldn't know what scientists claim to know. Uh, because if they did, if, if they were correct about this, you'd, be, you'd see a mass movement away from this because people would soon have their wealth wiped out. And you'd see it in insurance rates, all sorts of different uh, costs related to it because suddenly someone like me, I'd love to have a house in La Jolla, but good luck. Well, you know, Ken Fisher was on the show, as you know, yeah. and he had a very interesting idea. He said, if you're really worried about oceanfront property, it would cost a few billion dollars just to build a dike and become the Dutch. <laughs> and I think that's why Barack and Michelle bought their place in uh, Martha's Vineyard, isn't it? They're right on the, mm -hmm. right on the water? Of course. You mentioned <laughs> the, the, the very people who most believe in climate crisis own really expensive houses right where the climate's going to hit. And Ken hits on a crucial point. Even no one's saying the climate doesn't change, but even if it does, it's not as though we can't adjust. Implicit in this argument is that we're static human beings that we can't, we can't adjust to changes. Um, I'm terrified talking about stuff next to an MIT guy, but that's my belief. I just think that this is another example of where markets are saying that there's really no problem. Well, I'm not a scientist either. I don't, uh, the, uh, the only, my only personal take on, on the whole climate change stuff is that the climate models remind me too much of macroeconomic models. And I don't, oh, no. I, oh no. I don't think <laughs> I, I, I place the value of those macroeconomic models at zero, so I'm, I'm, I'm get nervous about the climate models. Well, you had a firsthand look at the Federal Reserve macroeconomic models that correctly Absolutely. predicted how many recessions well, in the it, last hundred years. It doesn't even, I don't think it even, <laughs> there, I, I would have to go spend 
you know, another, an hour on sort of what I think is wrong with macroeconomic models. Uh, they're just... Um, we don't it, have it, an hour. It just, we it do just have some time. They're though. just made up. I mean, it's just, it, it turns out that the, the degrees of freedom don't belong to the data, which is something that is required by the statistical theory. The degrees of freedom all belong to the investigator. And, and I think to some extent that's true in the climate story too. You don't, I don't think you really have enough data, and this is outside of my area of expertise, but I make this wager. I don't think you really have enough genuine data to build a climate model. And so you have to build it with a lot of the investigator's point of view built into it. Well, and tying it back to our original thought, you really, you really have to be we opened the show with politics not being close enough, government not being close enough to the real problems. The models, in, in a sense, are the same, have the same issue. They're not close enough to anything real to predict anything. And, you know, I ran a financial company, and I'd get asked, well, what's the economy going to do, or what's, you know, what's the GDP going to do? And I'd say, <laughs> you know, I don't have a clue. Uh, but what I can tell you is we've got 120 companies in our portfolio and I can tell you what their markets are doing and how they're responding and what their competition is. And if, the, if, if we see a change in the economic climate, they'll adapt. And I can, you know, we've got pretty good businesses that have withstood different, uh, different markets. And that's, that's the world of microeconomics. Yeah. And yet we get the model builders that, you know, and Keynes basically used the, was the, was the excuse to grow federal government. I mean, yeah. it, was, uh, it was the cover macroeconomics. Yeah. I'm being provocative. No, that's, I, love that. <laughs> no, no it, I don't disagree with that one. Well, uh, so, <laughs> you know, you could say that, you know, that, that the demand, the, the, that on the demand side, the politicians were going to find something I mean, to justify uh, you know, expanding government and, you know, the Keynesian story happened to fill that thing. Oh, there's a shortage of public investment. That's, that, that's the whole problem with the economy is the shortage of public investment. He ran with that. Galbraith ran with that. All there's the, the Sir John Cowperthwaite um, <laughs> back in the day. That's why with Hong Kong, he said, we will not do government statistics because they're not worthwhile to begin with, but they create an incentive among politicians to do things at which point you're intervening in the natural workings of it. And Hong Kong's a pretty good example of what happens. People are left alone. <laughs> or at least, it was, at least it used to be yeah. a great example. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so uh, guaranteed annual income. Good idea? Bad idea? Well, what I, what, first of all, it's important to know that it's arithmetically equivalent to a negative income tax. So if you have a sort of a point, let's say you set $40,000 as your point at which below that you pay a negative income tax of 25%. That is arithmetically equivalent to having a $10,000 guaranteed income with a 25% tax rate. You get all the exact same results. So I don't, whichever way you want to think about it. Um, I think it's a tremendous improvement over what we have now. If you could replace what we have now with a negative income tax or a guaranteed income, 
you would have working people going from an average tax rate of about 80% to something more like 25%. And I think that would produce a lot of positive social change. All of a sudden, these men who are not worth marrying uh, would be worth marrying because their income wouldn't be taxed at an 80% rate, it would be taxed at 25% rate. So, uh, you know, Milton Friedman was a fan of the negative income tax, which is what he called it then, uh, for that reason, because it was better than our current system, and I am a fan for that same reason. Um, the first thing I would say is public choice theory says that this would be run roughshod over by politicians because suddenly you have both sides competing. Explain with public choice theory. Politicians act in, in their own self-interest too, and they're going to say, oh, well, He's offering okay, not just private sector people, not just people in the private yeah. sector act in self Politicians, but, 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 yes. but bureaucrats <laughs> act in, in their own self interest. In their, yeah, okay. they're greedy okay. too. <laughs> and, and suddenly you have, he's offering 1200 a month. Oh, well, I'm offering 1500 And so where does it end? Um, that on its own, in terms of if you could replace it, yeah, and if we could just get back to constitutional government governance. We're not going to replace the other things. What we would get, history shows, as Arnold alluded, as we've all, we all agreed, is that government programs, once started, are rarely sunsetted. So you'd have a guaranteed income in addition to all these others. Uh, so it's dangerous there. At which point, I would cite one of the most profound things that I've ever read from you and Nick Schultz from your book. I'm trying to think of the name of it that you wrote. Well, it had two names, so don't worry about it. Yeah. <laughs> But they made the brilliant point that I have used over and over again, that the minute a worker walks into the United States, their productivity surges. I'm sorry, I don't feel, so I feel sorry for individual Americans, of course, there are so many reasons. But this idea that you're in a country like this, in a massive free trade zone that you are free to move around in and migrate on roads, and if you can't, don't have a car, you can get into a bus that will be air-conditioned with Wi-Fi on it that will take you to wherever you want to go. The idea that you need a helping hand from government, I find insulting, and I think it insults every single American um, and those who came before them who did not have these opportunities. Just real quick, you're, you're watching, watching a, the Bill Walton Show. I'm here with John Tamney and Arnold Kling, and we're talking about guaranteed annual income and whether that's a good idea or a bad idea. Arnold? Well, I... I probably agree with all those points, and especially the point that we are not going to replace other programs with it. I mean, we don't have housing programs because we care collectively about poor people's housing. We have housing programs because we have a powerful housing lobby. We don't have food stamps because we're so concerned about people not having enough to eat. We have food stamps because we have a powerful farm lobby. So. I think that's. I think you're. You're probably right on that. So, nice in theory, but unless you get rid of all the other bad stuff, probably not a good idea. And, and, and if we can just add that it's it's a solution in search of what's not a problem. The, the most famous proponent of it theoretically right now is Andrew Yang, and he says, "Well, technology is going to put people out of work." Oh, please! If that's true, show me all the places bereft of technology that are thriving, full of work, that yet probably all the people are working because they're just so poor. Uh, in countries where jobs are being destroyed, the opportunities are endless. And so the idea that 
these technological, that this time is different, is going to lead to a massively unemployed population defies logic and also any historical reality. Uh, the truth is that technology, which is by its very name about job destruction, uh, is going to continue to free people from work they hate and release them into work that more and more reflects their unique skills and intelligence. We're not, so I think 30 years from now, if we're having this discussion, let's hope we're all still alive at that point, we're gonna think, oh, remember when we talked about this? Those people we said were unemployed are loving work and they're, li they're living standards that are at a level that we never imagined. Let's plug your book, The End of Work. Yes, okay, that's a, that's, that is a plug for the book, okay. The End of Work. Available on Amazon, yes. basic ideas. We're all going to end up with jobs we love because of the increase in productivity. <laughs> <laughs> We've got a bit of time left. I want to swing back around to the, one of the things we talked about at the outset, the three languages of politics, because the three of us, are largely in the same camp and sort of we're, we can be in violent agreement on many things and yet there are not many people that think the way we're thinking or talking right now. How do you resolve something like, uh, I mean, how would, how, would, uh, how would the libertarian or how would the liberals on the oppressor, oppressed axis view something like, uh, um, I don't know what we've been talking about, the guaranteed annual income, what would their view be? Well, I think they'd, that there seems to be this you know, endless view that, that, that people are belonging to oppressed classes and that there's sort of no limit to what needs to be done to, uh, to correct that. So, I mean, the extreme progressive view or what were one of the, the more, I'll call it advanced progressive views, is that the African Americans should get reparations. From, uh, from yeah. the rest of us, and, uh, so they're. Um, you know, so they'd, they'd be for they'd be for the guaranteed annual income. Now the conservatives. Well, they might be for something yeah, beyond that again, like reparations. Okay, well even beyond that. that, but then the conservatives just trying to I'm making sure I understand your model. They'd be concerned about the guaranteed annual income because of what it does to your character to just get another Absolutely. check from yeah. the government. Yeah, thinking. And I'm not so sure we don't. I don't. Agree with that too. Well, I, well, I, I'm I, with you on that. I think they would say that it's going to cause deficits and it's going to cause people to be indolent. I'm sorry, Bill. There's no way you'd be indolent. Yeah. Uh, the, what, what, what's your number that I say to you? Okay, Bill, you get a check from government and you stop being productive. You shut this down. Same with you. I don't think you know too many people who are indolent who would let a meager government check wreck their character. Yeah. I, so I, I think conservatives yeah. overstate. I, well, I think that. Support for that just comes from the fact that these people who face these 80% marginal or average tax rates are actually still working mm -hmm. a lot of them. But I, I, I do think that, um, but, but I do think conservatives have a point there in that in, in very subtle ways it does undermine uh, character. Again, I, I think in, it, it may be a big factor in the declining marriage rate among uh, middle class and, and lower middle class people is that, uh, you know, where, you know, where the, the woman could really use the man's income or now vice versa, uh, that's just not true anymore. That, that motivation, you know, it's, it's very demotivating. And John, and John, I think, I think that trumps I think, marital sex. I think, <laughs> I think, I think we suffer a bit from living in silos, though, because, uh, you know, out in Rappahannock County, where I live, uh, 
There are a lot of people who wouldn't react quite the way you're describing. Well, I'm going to work, I'm going to do things, that sort of thing. I see a lot of people whose souls are pretty deadened by, by you know, the government programs, but also the, the, the opioid issues and the, and the family breakup and things like that. And, and this is something conservatives are concerned about because we do need, I think, I think for, to have a robust economic order, you need to have a robust civil order. And we are seeing a civil order deteriorating. Mm -hmm. I'm not so sure everybody's as robust as you make them out to be. I, I have no doubt you're right. And just to walk around, um, you see all of that. Uh, where I refuse, I just refuse to blame government for it. I, I think that I think want people want to call this elitist. Um, I think people make bad decisions, and re feel free to call it elitist because what I'll say in return is that it's elitist for someone who won the lottery of being born in the United States to say that something's not fair, that the government did this, government caused me to not be ambitious because we descend from people much poorer than anyone in Rappahannock who crossed oceans and borders just to get a taste of freedom, uh, who didn't live a fraction of their lifestyle and, and didn't know the English language. And so um, I think it's more elitist to say that people can't pick themselves up because we see it all the time. We see the world's poorest to this day risking their lives to get here. They don't know English, they're not educated, yet they know that once they're here, and Arnold Nick's point, they get, they get here and they become enormously productive. Open borders. You're, uh, you're, I'm just thinking about all the people coming in here because they're gonna be instantly productive. What do we do about immigration? And we have two minutes to cover this. <laughs> uh, I think the easiest way to deal with is to price it, uh, to get rid of the uh, complex ad administrative law that's okay. related to immigration, just replace it with a price system. And uh, how, how would that, how would so that work? So I don't know what you'd charge, but you say, okay, if you can put up $10,000, you, you can come on in. Coming in. Okay. Um, that's, um, what, what about a give or get? Could you say, well, I don't have $10,000, but I've got a PhD in economics. From nope. No, you find, you, find, you somebody, find somebody to sponsor <laughs> you. Yeah, just okay. keep it simple. I just keep want, it simple. I, right. I, I, I'm just I trying like to get rid of the complexity. Um, and, you know, if, if, you, if you favor open borders, you can drop that price to zero. That's, I mean, you've got that. But that's, well, I, think, I think putting a price on it would be an improvement on what we have. But you're still, by putting that price on it, people are going to say, I'm not going to pay it, and I'm going to get in. There will be people willing to hire them. My solution is a bit more basic. Legalize work here. Say, citizenship, just an object, but you are legal to work here. Now, the response will be, but yeah, but terrorists could come in. Okay, so the libertarian in me will say, let's legalize work, but announce yourself when you cross in. Just tell us you're here. So, so, so you'd, have, which you'd, point, have, you'd have no screen. Yeah, at which point, because... I, we, we, we wouldn't tell businesses uh, what kind of steel to import, how much, uh, yeah. what different things, but we're telling them the, what to import, the most important of all, human capital. So legalize the work, at which point those who don't announce themselves, a much smaller border patrol could chase after those who are coming in, perhaps for different reasons. Um, I just think any time you make something onerous, uh, you're just, people are going to, they're going to sneak in and not pay it. And, for me, I'd be happy with that. I, I like human capital. I go back to your point. I think I even reference it in, in the book that when people arrive here, they become much more productive. 
Well, I'm, I, I don't. I can't come up with a good moral case against immigration, so I'm not going to. I'm not going to. I'm not going to argue with that one. I, I just. I think that sort of getting from here to some something that a lot of people would accept is uh, it's not a two-minute conversation, unfortunately. I know, I know, <laughs> which leads me to my next line. We run out of time. <laughs> As usual, this is fascinating, and I've, I've got a lot more here I would like to cover. So I've, you've been, I'd like to have you both back at some point where we can maybe spend a little more time than 90 seconds on immigration. Uh, anyway, that's it for now. Uh, thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll see you next on the next Bill Walton Show. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening. Want more? Be sure to subscribe at thebillwaltonshow.com or on iTunes. Amazon is hiring near you. Earn a competitive wage and start as soon as seven days. No resume or experience required. Health and safety are a top priority with all of our roles and sites. Amazon is taking precautions in our buildings to keep people healthy. Go to Amazon.com slash apply. That's Amazon.com slash apply. Amazon is an equal opportunity employer.